I would just like to start out our witnessing God's work piece of the service today by saying I'm 99% sure that Cindy and Mary had no idea what I was about to stand up and talk about when they chose that song. <laughs> Um, but we're about to talk about the passing of the peace this morning and how deeply we need peace in our broken and hurting world right now. As many of you um, have heard in the news, there was a terrible, terrible massacre last Sunday night at a music festival in Las Vegas in which I believe 58 or 59 people died and the last number I heard was 489 people were injured in that shooting, and it is such a um, stark um, and deep reminder of our need for God's peace. And so I want to spend a few moments just talking about this part of our service we call passing the peace. It's a little bit that sometimes gets neglected, theologically speaking, but it has such deep importance in our lives and in our worship and in our community as Christians. Our Book of Common Worship says about the passing of the peace, the people may exchange with one another by words and gesture signs of peace and reconciliation. Um, and this is often placed after the insurance of pardon. In fact, in um, our Book of Worship, that is, um, they recommend putting it either there or at the end of the service because it's Christ's forgiveness of us that even makes peace and reconciliation possible in our human relationships. It's this in the passing of the peace that we remember that we are responsible for extending forgiveness and peace to one another and for being peacemakers in the world. I found a great article that I have attached to the back of the sermon manuscripts this week if you want to read the whole thing. And it says this, when we extend our hand to one another, we identify with Jesus who extended his life to the point of death to make peace with humanity. What's more, in the midst of dis divisions, we symbolize our unity through handshakes and hugs. We aren't just shaking hands with each other as a polite gesture, but rather as an extension of our community in Jesus Christ. Likewise, it says, when we regularly pass the peace, we practice God's call to make every effort to maintain the bond of peace. And so we do this every week to keep those bonds strong, to keep them together, to keep them at the forefront of our relationships with one another. Now, it is completely possible to just go through the motions of the passing of the peace without actually passing any peace around, but it's really hard to do that week after week when you continue to say, may the peace of Christ be with you. May the peace of Christ be with you. When you say the same thing enough times, eventually it starts to sink into even the thickest of our skulls. And that's why it's so important to say those words that can feel awkward. They feel out of place. In our culture, we don't say things like that to people. There are places in the world where shalom, which means peace and wholeness, are, is a regular part of their greeting, but we don't do that. Um, and I guess some people say peace out when they leave a room, but that's about it. Um, so it's, but it's really important to say these words, peace be with you, um, before just how are you or good morning, which are great greetings, but we need first and foremost this peace. That article also says, passing the peace challenges us to be more than polite, 
We might say that it dares us to move beyond ourselves, our interests, our concerns, and create Christ-like community with others. It is the practice of a communal way of life framed by Christ's peace that makes this gesture so significant. I encourage you next week and the week after and the week after as we get to the passing of the peace in our service to really take to heart and think about what those words mean as we say them to one another. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Each week as we do this, um, witnessing God's work piece of our service, I'm adding another thing to the board. You all are still welcome to add things that uh, you see God doing in the world around you each week. Um, but you'll see I have a, a handshake for a passing of the peace added on there. We've added communion for last week for World Communion Sunday. And uh, these are just reminders of these things. And so I encourage you to um, continue to remember where we've seen God working to continue to remember that God works through all different parts of our worship and our liturgy. These aren't just old rites that got tossed in for no reason. They have deep theological meaning for us. So with that said, brothers and sisters, may the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may hear your word with joy. Amen. Our Hebrew scripture reading this morning comes from the prophet Isaiah. It's in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stone, and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I had not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, and his pleasant planting, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. For our gospel reading this morning, we will continue in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 21 verses 33 through 46. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. 
When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of God for the people of God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Our two passages today from Isaiah and Matthew offer pretty dark pictures of humankind. In Isaiah, the vineyard that the Lord has planted goes poorly tended, and it yields nothing but wild grapes. Wild grapes are not a good thing. They are teeny, tiny, sour little grapes that are not good for eating. They're not good for winemaking. They're not good for anything but maybe the birds. And in Jesus' parable in Matthew, the vineyard is tended to, but the tenants tending to it are unwilling to give up their control of it when the representatives of their landlord show up to collect what he is due. The workers don't just say no. They are violent against the agents of the landlord because they are not willing to give up their control. When they feel vulnerable, they lash out in violence. When they are challenged, they kill those sent on behalf of the landlord. One thing I find interesting here is that when Jesus asks the crowd what should be done about this, the crowd essentially says, kill them, let them swing for what they've done. But all Jesus says is that they will lose their control of the vineyard. He does not call for more violence in the face of their violence. God will not allow his creation to remain in the hands of those who treat others in such appalling ways. As Frederick Buckner says, though, the one who judges us most finally will be the one who loves us most fully. It's hard for us to see violent, awful things happen and not respond with outrage. And there is an appropriate level of righteous anger that we should seek to find. That said, responding to violence in kind is a human idea, not God's. We are not to repay violence. With violence. And as we've all seen this week, there is no shortage of violence in our world. 
Last Sunday night, 58 people were shot dead and hundreds more. As I said earlier, the last number I saw was 489 were injured in a terrible massacre at a music festival in Las Vegas. And we should be angry about that. We should want to change the world in ways that make it a safer place so atrocities like that don't happen again. But our response cannot be one of more overt violence. And our response cannot be one of further siloing and dividing of different groups of people by pros and cons or race or political affiliation or social status. That also does violence. It does violence to our relationships to one another as fellow human beings, as creations of God. It only furthers the damage. Now today is also Domestic Violence Awareness Sunday on our Presbyterian planning calendar. And as a survivor of domestic violence myself, I am never shy about speaking out that the church should care very deeply about this issue. In spite of mass shootings like the one this weekend, the leading victims of gun violence in our country are still battered women. Intimate partner violence accounts for approximately 15% of all violent crime. That number is on par with drug-related violence. Let me repeat that. There is as much violent crime linked to domestic violence as there is linked to drugs. So how must we, as Christ's people, respond to violence in our world? Both the large scale and sensational, like that in Las Vegas last week, and the smaller scale but culturally pervasive and insidious violence, like domestic violence. As Isaiah points out, God does not look kindly on the chosen and called people who perpetuate bloodshed instead of justice and righteousness. Notice that Isaiah does not just say those who shed the blood themselves, but even those who perpetuate it, even those who simply turn a blind eye or sweep it under the rug or shrug their shoulders and say, what can I do? We absolutely must take a stand against any and all violence and bloodshed in our lives and in our world, because ignoring it is to fail to tend to the vineyard, as we saw in last week's parable of the two sons, where one says, yes, I'll go, and doesn't tend the vineyard at all. Ignoring it is to fail to tend it, as we see in Isaiah. Ignoring it is to stand by while the tenants of the vineyard beat and kill the landowner's son. Now, I cannot begin to fathom what makes a person open fire on a music festival. I don't know what prompts a person to physically or verbally assault a person they have pledged to love, honor, and cherish. Perhaps it is because for many, God, like the landowner, feels absent. And even when he sends his son, it's not enough to make him feel more present for many people. This week in Bible study, we're going to be talking about the Torah. That is the first five books of the Bible called the Law sometimes, but I wish we would call them the Covenant rather than the Law. 
because these five books set up the covenant that God makes with humankind. The covenant is the promise that God makes with us to care for us and to love us. And covenant is even more than just a promise because it's made mutually between two parties. A promise is made by one. A covenant is sealed by two. And it's more than just that. There is a legal indication in the Hebrew understanding of covenant. It's almost like a truce or a treaty or a marriage or an adoption or a little bit of all of those combined. Covenant is big. It's important. And if one of the parties screws up and doesn't meet their end of the covenant, that is bad news for them. But we are human. And we do things like shoot 59 people at a music festival or hurt the people we're supposed to love or turn a blind eye and let those sort of things happen. But we are the tools of God's grace in this world. And we must tend kindly to his vineyard because it is not ours to destroy and it is not ours to ignore. We've been leased this world to care for it. We stink at keeping covenant. Though, brothers and sisters, we are bad tenants and caretakers of God's vineyard. But there is good news. God will remain faithful to God's end of the covenant, even if we cannot or will not. In spite of the escalating violence, the beating, the stoning, the killing, the vineyard owner sends his son he keeps offering another way to these tenant farmers. This response is insane. Who says, these men beat and killed and stoned my servants, and so I'm going to send my son this time? Why does he still send his son? He has to know what is going to happen. He doesn't respond with violence or with an army or the force of the law. The vineyard owner chooses vulnerability. God risks great violence to be in relationship with us. That is how deeply we are beloved. Those of you who are familiar with Star Trek know that if there is a battle of any sort, the first guy to die is almost always the extra in the red uniform. They're often called red shirts. If you hear the term red shirt, it is referring to an expendable character in the plot. But God does not send a red shirt to end death and violence. He sent his precious beloved son, Jesus. Because death and violence do not, cannot, do not, when, in the end, God didn't send in more violence in spite of things getting worse, he sent in a sacrificial lamb. That is good news for those of us who have suffered violence at the hands of a spouse or other loved one. That is good news for those who have suffered violence at the hands of a madman with an automatic rifle. God cares deeply and understands the pain of violence in the world on a very intimate and personal level. God is not an absentee landlord. Speaking of Star Trek, I try to keep those references to a minimum for, your, for you all, but I couldn't help it this week. 
because Tim and I began watching the new Star Trek Discovery series the other night. Thank you, Mark, for reminding me that that was on. <laughs> the main character says something that was very striking to me in the first episode of this. She's referring to how stars exploding change the universe and how that sort of um, explosion causes new things to come about in our universe. She says, all life is born from chaos and destruction. Even in scripture, we see that God creates out of the chaos. When we are faced with chaos and destruction, our job is to find the life that can come out of it. I talk a lot about looking to see where God is at work in the world, and this is one way that we do that. We find ways to plant new life in the wake of violence. This means we don't get to leave our responses to telling people that they are in our thoughts and prayers. It's good that they are in our thoughts and prayers, but we cannot stop there. This means that there is something bigger and more tangible and more hopeful that we can offer in the midst of great pain. Love and new life. We can offer the love of our God who cares for us all, weak or strong. We start by saying, may the peace of Christ be with you, and continue by living lives of compassion and caring, of peace and tenderness. We model ourselves after the vulnerable landowner's son, the sacrificial lamb, our Lord Jesus. It's hard sometimes to accept that we are given grace in Jesus Christ. It's often easier to hang our identity on the bad things that we have done or the bad things that have been done to us than it is to hang our identity on the forgiveness and the wholeness that we receive by the saving work of Jesus Christ. It's hard sometimes to accept that the whole world is given grace in Jesus Christ. It's easy to look at the world around us and fall into despair over the state of things. It's very hard to accept grace personally, communally, and in regards to the other individuals around us. But this holy privilege of saying you are forgiven in Jesus Christ, may the peace of our Lord Jesus be with you, is worth that work. Amen.